the future of smart. A project of Grantmakers for Education will explore ideas at the intersection of education, equity, and philanthropy that point us towards a radical re-envisioning of our education system. We'll hear from those working at the edge of what's possible and explore what it means to support transformative change for young people and their communities. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Future of Smart podcast, a project of Grantmakers for Education. My name is Olga Joshi Hansen, Chief Program Officer of EdFunders, author of the award-winning book, The Future of Smart, and your host. For those of you just joining us, today's episode is the second of a series in which we're exploring some of the structures we need to interrogate if we want to design education in a way that works for all students, and more importantly, makes this kind of education actually accessible to all students, especially those who have been most marginalized in the current system. We started last week talking about competency-based education, and today we're going to begin exploring school design principles and how some of our broader policy systems need to change to accommodate them. So often when we design or redesign schools, we're using templates that were invented during the scientific revolution in Europe. As I shared in the introduction to last week's episode, and as the early episodes of season one explore in more depth, Before this period, most societies were grounded in a view of the world that reflects a more ecological state of being. Everything, including human beings, is connected, interdependent, and part of complex systems. The scientific revolution in Europe saw a different worldview become dominant. It was a view of the world that assumes that human beings exist apart from nature, that things can be easily taken apart and understood, that growth, learning, and progress can be made more efficient through linear, standardized processes. This Cartesian-Newtonian worldview birthed the conventional factory model of education, which views learning as linear and structured, and neglects other forms of knowing and intelligence that human beings are capable of. It tends to standardize people and label and stigmatizes the ones who don't fit. By design, many students get left behind in this system, and most of us recognize that it's not aligned with what young people need to thrive in life. And this podcast invites us to look deeper to understand why change is so hard. We've gotten to hear from many leaders who are trying to build new ways of working that are more holistic and human-centered by design. We've heard that human-centered approaches to education and learning are grounded in deep relationships. They emphasize holistic well-being and development for both young people and adults. They encourage young people to own their learning, to embrace complexity and failure as part of the learning process, and to engage in real-world learning and problem-solving. Building schools or shifting how schools operate to reflect holistic Indigenous values is complex and subtle. It requires a shift in the mindset that educators and young people bring to their work, And it also requires design choices and the development of systems inside and outside of the school that support this shift. In today's episode, I'm joined by Jenny Curtin, Director of the Education Program at the Barr Foundation. Barr has historically supported the development of innovative high school models in the New England area. Over time, their understanding of what innovation looks like has evolved and Barr has increased its investment in programs that are more human-centered in their approach. Join us for a conversation with Jenny about what she and her team have learned about what makes these models unique, the ways in which they reframe the idea of high expectations for all students, but in ways that honor the diversity of human potential, and the conditions that need to be in place for these programs to succeed in their work. I especially appreciated Jenny's reminder that when we think about what education could be, we need to think expansively, and that whenever we attempt to move beyond what our dominant system values, we need to remember the importance of relationship, partnership, and patience. Welcome, Jenny. Thanks so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, So I'd love to start where we always start um, in this podcast, and that's with your personal story, um, since we know that our journeys shape who we are and what we do. So tell us a little bit about your own background, your pathway to the work you do today, and why it matters to you. 
Yeah, sure. Happy to do that. Um, one of my driving stories of for my why is uh, I went to college at Tulane University in New Orleans. And in college, I was a pre-med major floundering, not sure what exactly I wanted to do, and um, ended up having the opportunity to volunteer in New Orleans public schools pre-Katrina. Um, and it ended up being a profound experience that literally changed the course of my life. Um, it really brought to the center for me the intersection of race and poverty and in a way that I hadn't seen before. Um, and one of my assignments was teaching a small group of boys who at the time were in like fourth and fifth grade how to read. Um, I was given this assignment with zero training um, and uh, also met a number of brand new teachers who were at that same building um, who were also woefully unprepared and struggling to make it through the day. Um, and, um, and most importantly, saw how poorly students were being educated and ultimately how broken the entire system was. And um, it has left a lasting impact that um, that experience um, and other volunteer experiences that I had in New Orleans public schools at that time really informed my interest in entering um, the public policy field and thinking about how to more systemically address education equity in a more holistic, systemic way that it wasn't, we weren't going to find our way out of this by smaller solutions that we really needed to take a bigger picture approach. Um, and that was something that I saw in my classroom experience in, in New Orleans um, and then saw through working in a couple small nonprofits in Baltimore and D.C., um, and then when I was working at the State Department of Education in Massachusetts, always have been thinking about what is the systemic approach to addressing these inequities that um, can be designed differently. We can, we can make a different system for students. And so after working in schools and in public policy, you've now uh, been at the Barr Foundation for, um, for an extended tenure. I'd love to if you could share a little bit about the evolution of Barr Foundation and its work in the area, particularly of school design and development and redesign. You relaunched your education strategy in 2015, 2016. And how was that direction new um, and building on what Barr had learned? Yeah, sure. Our education program is grounded in advancing excellence and equity for high school students. We envision public high schools across all of New England that have been transformed, that provide learning experience that are relevant and rigorous and aligned with supports to ensure that all students, particularly students of color and other systemically marginalized students thrive and they graduate ready to choose and pursue whatever fulfilling path they want to choose for themselves in their future. Um, since the beginning of this strategy, we've had a focus on equity and excellence and the high school space in particular, anchored in a belief that students can thrive in and after high school when we are intentionally designing schools um, that embrace a positive youth development approach with quality and consistency. And so we think about things like high expectations of students, students' voice and choice, engaging learning experiencing experiences, trusting and supportive relationships for students. And this focus um, really came to be from our work in um, previously to the strategy launch in 2016 to, um, for, from prior work in Boston that which was much broader, um, focused in on a geographic area that was tighter than we are now, but much more broader in the types of work that we were doing. And we felt like there was a real opportunity to go deep in high school design um, by supporting school and system leaders um, to collaborate with their communities, with all of their stakeholders, parents, students, educators to envision excellence and equity in their school, and then plan and prepare for how to get there to make that transformative change. Now, this idea of high school redesign, I feel like took off in a really big way about seven, eight, nine years ago. And around that time, 
Barr partnered with a couple of other funders to invest in a project called the Canopy Project, and it was aimed at identifying and gathering information about innovative schools, but it was trying to shift a little bit from how innovation had been defined before. So can you tell us a bit about the genesis of the Canopy Project and some of the insights that were generated? Yeah, sure. The genesis of the Canopy Project came from an interest in better understanding what was happening across the K-12 education landscape. Um, More than um, collecting one-off data about what's happening in individual schools, but to more systemically and more broadly um, collect data so that we could um, all learn more about where innovation was happening. We um, saw that educators everywhere were making changes in teaching and learning. Um, but that the education community funders like us, along with state and federal decision makers and district and school leaders, researchers and advocates, um, didn't have a, a ready source of detailed information about innovators outside of some established networks and some major urban centers in particular. The same schools were being lifted up over and over again as what we were reflecting. And um, because these same schools were gaining the widespread attention, um, we recognized that their models weren't all relevant to every context. There are likely schools that were under the radar that we could explore and learn more more about and serve us all well in our ongoing learning um, about what's possible for students. And so we've used uh, Canopy Um, in a variety of ways, including highlighting really interesting practices that happened during COVID um, and coming out of COVID in particular stands out to me as as one opportunity. Um, For example, we were able to lift up a couple examples of how um, schools were able to personalize supports for students to ensure that they got the opportunities they need. Um, There's a school in Canopy Common Ground High School in New Haven, Connecticut, um, where student feedback inspired what they called "What You Need Wednesdays," um, that they had it was exactly that that they were had a number of options for students one on one meetings with with teachers, small group work, peer coaching, um, resting and recharging that was built based on their commitment to um, really embrace student agency and respond to student feedback. Um, and that per, that and lean into personalization of the student experience. We also have a school in Canopy, Chelsea Opportunity Academy in Massachusetts, where many students, over half of students, are working close to full time um, to support their households. And uh, the school was able to innovate um, to expand the idea of where learning can happen. Sometimes you see course credit given, sort of. Um, uh, elective course credit for internships and out-of-school learning experiences. In this case, they actually thought about the competencies that students were gaining from those work-based experiences and developed courses to tie the learning outside the school walls to their some of their core graduation requirements. Um, so students could demonstrate graduation competencies through assignments um, that reflected what they were learning at their at their jobs. And so those are two examples. Um, more recently, we've also used Canopy to, um, we bring um, many of our partners out to visit schools nationally as part of a way to inspire and inform what's possible and um, have used Canopy to, to explore new places that we haven't brought people to that might be good opportunities um, for our for our local grantees to to see. So you oversee the Bar Foundation's $40 million a year in grant making in New England. And as you said, it's about catalyzing new models of high school, building public will and investing in educators. So I wanna start with the models of high school. Um, since part of the framework of this podcast is trying to distinguish between efforts that are aimed at improving schools as they are right now by kind of adding on interventions versus approaches to education that are more human-centered and liberatory, so have very different assumptions about the purpose of education, about how learning happens, um, and and that leads to different kinds of design principles. Does that distinction make sense to you, given Barr's work in catalyzing new models in New England? Yes, I think it does. We 
believe that to really reach our goals around equity and excellence, that schools need to fundamentally change, uh, that almost everything needs to be intentionally reimagined and rebuilt. Uh, One of Barr's core values as an overall foundation is to take the long view. We're committed to look at the impact of our work over time and not just aim for quick wins. Another one of our core values is around striving for impact, that we aspire to advance ambitious solutions to big challenges. And so we're really bolstered by these and other of our core values to invest in the opportunity of a longer and more complex school design and planning work um, so that we're supporting school leaders and their teams, including teachers and students and families, to more deeply understand their current state, to develop a vision for what their school could be, and begin to implement and iterate around this this type of vision um, so that it's not about tacking on a new program, but really getting at fundamentally, what is the purpose of what we're doing here? And how do we organize ourselves, our entire school around that new purpose? So you named a couple of um, your observations, right? That they're thinking differently about what they're aiming towards, they're kind of thinking differently about um, what students need. Are there other things that strike you as kind of unique and consistent across different models Hmm. that matters? Yeah, I think there's a few things that come to mind. One is this mission that's rooted in the belief that all students can achieve at high levels. If you don't have that sort of mindset and belief system that's explicit in your school, it's really hard to organize the st- staff and the learning experiences for students and all, um, all the aspects um, and initiatives of a, of a school to be um, aligned to equity and excellence. So mish, starting with mission. And the can belief- I ask, can I just interrupt, though, and clarify? So yeah. does that also assume, though, that there are different definitions of what it means to achieve at high levels? In other words, mm. we, we have high expectations of students, but that does not equal five AP classes or every student is, you know, has a GPA of 4.0. I'm trying to think about even some of the models you mentioned, like if you're working full time mm-hmm. and you're pulling that backwards into class. So can you talk a little bit about that in terms of how we balance this idea of human difference with high expectations? Yeah, it's a great question. Part of your question is getting at sort of a very um, conventional way of thinking about what does it mean to be successful? Um, and we're thinking about it's supporting our schools to have a broader definition of student success. And so that means, yes, there is some core academic knowledge and skills and thinking about the range of other skills that people might call transferable skills or 21st century skills um, that students need um, and social capital and their the ability to plan and have a plan for post-secondary success. It's a range of, um, it's a range um, of uh, components that we want all students to have. And it's less about what the grades are, but really ultimately about what students are learning and are they being set up, is every single student being set up to pursue the the life that they want to pursue after after high school? And meaning that there are no differences based on race or other student characteristics. So if we see a school, for example, that has huge differences in the rate of college entrance, for example, using a a relatively simple example um, between their students of color and their white students, um, a school could say students are choosing not to enter college and that is their choice that they're making. Another way to look at that is that there's something systematically happening across the school that's um, leading students to making that choice and not maybe that's not the preparation for um, entrance into a college option, or maybe it's about um, that they haven't had exposure or the support. There could be a whole range of reasons. And what we're after is that when we think about the definition of equity being that student outcomes aren't are predictable by student characteristics, that they're all that students are able to accomplish what that individual wants to pursue, 
um, that they that we have that high expectation that that is possible for every student. Um, and so that's what I mean about having high expectations that they're that all students can achieve and pursue the life that they dream and hope to pursue. Um, and that takes a whole range of competencies for students. Yeah. And right to your point that you're not pre you're not pre-assumed to be able to do or not do certain things because of class, race, family background, language background, et cetera. And I appreciate you taking a minute to dig into that, right? But I think sometimes these phrases get simplified and have in the past, I think, led us to kind of standardize in an effort to get there when actually now we're hearing more and more of a call to kind of understand diversity, difference, and individualization, including the reality of multiple pathways. Is there anything else you see as a constant in terms of how these programs design learning experiences? So they've set this idea that every student needs to be set up to succeed across a wide range of metrics. We want to disconnect their background from their future. Um, And then how do they go about designing learning experiences that might feel unique or different? Yeah. And I think even naming the fact that learning experiences have to be part of that, that fundamental change is an important piece in and of itself that I think we have seen um, examples, both locally here in New England and nationally, where there's been some really exciting school design work that's happening, but it actually isn't touching the core of what's happening for students and instruction in their learning experiences. And what we have found um, through our partnerships is that that's incredibly important that we can't actually get to our goals of ex- equity and excellence if we are not talking about curriculum instruction and um, that we have to be doing that differently um, for students and really thinking about rigor and purpose in a way that um, supports students through challenging and meaningful learning experiences um, that prepare them to pursue the range of college and career options that they may want to pursue after um, and that they can speak to the why behind what they're learning um, and helps to support them in their own identity development and exploration of the future. And so are these schools more likely um, to have been on the front end of thinking about out-of-school learning time experiences and real-world learning. Um, for folks who listen to this podcast, we heard from Temple Grandin um, you know, a couple of episodes ago talking about different kinds of minds and the way that we've gotten rid of technical education and career education and shop. So were those schools sort of on the front end of saying, hey, there's a whole range of places and ways in which learning experiences can look? Yeah, we do have a number of partners that are really trying to push the boundaries of what the definition um, of school is for like a more physical space um, uh, sort of realm that, that school doesn't have to be defined by the the walls of a school building. Um, And what is important about our partners that are pursuing this work is um, how do we move beyond sort of us internships and uh, place-based learning opportunities for small groups of students um, to a place where it's scaled as part of like the fundamental way a school works so that all students are getting these types of meaningful and rigorous learning experiences um, as part of their core academic experiences um, as part to make progress towards graduation. Um, and so we have a number of, of schools that are really trying to think about how do we take maybe an elective that was once an elective course um, and not make it an elective course. What does it mean to make it um, something that's more rigorous and a deeper learning experience for students? Um, we also have a number of uh, schools that are thinking about uh, cross-disciplinary project-based learning um, where they're doing field work with students um, and uh, and really taking advantage of community assets in a way that they hadn't before. So it shows up in a range of ways. We recently had a partner school who um, had an English teacher design a fly fishing course um, where they were, uh, students were out in nature when the weather permitted and also tying that back to the wet they were reading in their 
in their English course. So as soon as you start doing the things you're talking about, opening up the world, thinking about different experiences, having a full range of outcomes, social capital, all of these other pieces, it shifts what we need to measure, what we need to assess, how we need to assess it. Are there things that stand out to you in terms of the information and data these schools are trying to collect about students, about student experiences in order to assess both what young people know, can do, right, and and how they can think, as well as how they're doing their own work? Yeah, so uh, the schools that we're working with are taking like a, a, I would say, a both-and approach to to how they think about uh, assessment. So, and we work with the six New England states primarily, and what the the state-led infrastructure around testing looks like is different in each of those states. Um, But in all cases, there's an understanding of there's some core um, basic level of skill and knowledge that that students need. And um, there's also an opportunity to really decide for ourselves at a local level, sort of a a small a accountability, local accountability around what do we want to hold ourselves accountable to ensuring that students have. Um, And so uh, we have schools that are naming for themselves what that looks like because of that expanded definition of student success are recognizing that it's important to then think about how to, how to measure that. One of the things that we've done with our partners is uh, invest in a student level survey that gets at some of those student success skills that are not t- often measured. And it's one way that we are both capturing sort of at a foundation level for our ongoing learning about where there's gaps and opportunities, but also for our individual schools to understand their own progress on student success skills that they also value. So so this both and approach, um, I think it's really important to lead with your values about like, what are we actually after? Um, And then think about what exists sort of in the broader ecosystem already that we don't have to that we don't have to uh, double down on in additional um, resources at the local level, but how could we complement that with additional ways of understanding the student experience? So you named a couple things that I want to come back to. One was accountability with a small A, one was accountability with a big A, um, both of which, and then a little bit about how you as a foundation kind of assess your progress. But before we move on, you know, within your portfolio, you know, you have schools both that have designed themselves and then built up from the ground to kind of be who they are. And then it's another thing to take existing schools and help them evolve in the direction of being more human-centered, student-centered. So what have you learned about what it takes to design for and support whole school change for schools that already exist and can't just build themselves up from the ground up? I think there's a few big areas that that stand out when supporting schools to to evolve and change in a really foundational and fundamental way in, in the way that we've been talking about. The first is around the shifting mindsets around having a high expectations for students that the adult mindsets around what's possible for students, what's possible for young people um, is really critical um, for setting the foundation for other change. Uh, the prioritization of instructional improvement and the student support levers to really support students to to meet the rigor and relevance of that instruction. So again, we can't we can do some really exciting and meaningful things for students, but if we're not also touch, touching the instructional core, we've just found we, that they were not able to move the needle on equity in the way that we really care about. Aligned with that is that clear having that clear vision and having that shared purpose that you're bringing stakeholders along in the journey. Many of our schools do a lot of um, exploration of what's possible through both virtual and in-person visits to other schools. And, And that is not just the school leaders that are doing those types of visits, but it's also students and families and community members participating in that. One of the things we've really learned in particular is the importance of school leaders, not surprisingly, in having the right mindset and openness to change that they are, while not the only people making the decisions, but they are their mindset around the work and what's possible, especially for an existing school and what the opportunity is for changing um, is really critical. And we've done a lot around monitoring um, 
progress for individual schools and for our investments across the board in, in schools. And so we actually invest in developmental school observation visits to look at uh, what's happening across a number of dimensions from instruction to student supports, to college and career planning, to the mission and vision, and uh, get a sense of where the, where's the school at developmentally. The school also gets that report back in an individual way, and we are able to learn across the board where are the pain points um, across our school and where are the bright spots that we can lean on and share um, both with our partners and the field more broadly. I mean, that that sort of developmental accountability or assessment sounds like such a great idea for everybody, right? Imagine if every school could have people coming in to be like, here's what you say you want to do. Here's where you are and doing great. Here's where you could get better. And it's kind of what we all think about, right, when we talk about formative assessment um, or assessment for improvement. So, you know, as you've been talking about both of these sets of schools, you know, my observation of the field generally is that we have a lot of proof of concept of individual school models, but one of the things that comes up again and again is that they're hard to replicate. I don't like the word scale, but they're hard to kind of like spread um, into larger communities of schools. And part of the reason is that the work you just described is really complicated, right? You start with a different purpose and a different vision, and you're engaging students in different ways and designing and assessing learning differently. And a lot of the models of these more human-centered liberty, liberatory approaches are things like Montessori, like EL, like big picture learning that have existed. And they've codified themselves, not in the sense that it's a cookie cutter, but that there's a template for folks to start with to kind of say, all right, we've got some foundational readings or some foundational conversations that we have. And it's a starting point that communities can sort of then make their own. If I were to say we might be better positioned to spread the existence of these kinds of schools in the in the public system if we could codify some of these and create templates, that that would actually be a good investment point um, for funders and for policymakers. Because to ask an individual leader or an individual set of teachers to build it from scratch is just really, really hard and takes a really long time. Does that resonate for you? Yeah, it does. I think there's a there's a both and approach here too around standing on the shoulders of others that have done this work and uh, really leaning into what they are able to codify and share. We think a lot about how we're sh- how we're sharing, what we're learning, what our what our partner schools are doing, um, and wanting to be doing more and more of that over time because we see the value in that. And that's why we do those types of things like bring schools out to visit others nationally um, and to share resources from other schools. And at the same time, have seen how important it is to really center the voices of educators, students, and families in the local context um, that a school is working and so it's about bringing people along on that journey with you so that you're both learning from, from others um, and the range of models that are out there. We don't have a bar model of high school. We think about sort of like framework for school quality more generally. But seeing those types of models and the range of possibilities inspires, informs, provides people a starting place that they might not have otherwise. Um, and then they can like contextualize that in their in in their local community context. I sort of once thought about it as um, as having like a song sheet, right? If you're trying to get a lot of people to move in the same direction, like if you're in a choir or you're in an orchestra, you have sort of a, a basic sheet there that people can use to sort of know where they're going. And it sometimes feels like in education, there is this desire to constantly reinvent everything. Um, and that just, it can be really hard and it prevents progress from happening at the rate we would like, particularly for kids in communities who've already been left behind for a really, really long time. Um, so, but thank you for that observation. We are seeing that some, I'd say it's a fairly nascent area at this point, but where we're seeing it probably the most amongst our partners is we have a number of partners um, implementing what we call transformative learning experience. So these are rich project-based um learning units on a whole variety of um, subject 
and topic areas. And part of the focus of these transformative learning uh, units is to uh, bring the community into the classroom and bring students out into the into the world as well, um, outside of school walls. And so um, this could look like students participating in a moot court um, with their um, with local um, law students and uh, court uh, in their local community, or uh, participating in. Um, a gentrification photography project that is bringing in city officials to talk about gentrification in their community. So there's a lot of uh, those types of opportunities that are happening. Some of them are one-off and some of them are over the course of the entire unit that these uh, experts in various fields are also being embedded as educators in the learning experience for students. So we'll come back to this in one second, but I want to ask you, the idea of mindset, this idea of shifting how we think about the work, it's so critical, but it's also really hard to measure. So how are you thinking about and measuring the success of your investments and partnerships with schools and communities? Our ultimate goal, of, of course, is around what's happening for student outcomes. That is our, our North Star and we recognize to have really meaningful change in that area, it takes time. And so um, there's lots of different other measures that we're paying attention to um, and, uh, and try to capture understanding about our investments and the field more broadly in a variety of ways. Um, so, of course, we do pay attention to what's happening um, with, with individuals student, at the student level, um, again, thinking about this broader definition of student success that captures both academic knowledge and skills as well as student success skills more broadly. Um, and then uh, we do a number of uh, surveys and polling uh, with students, uh, educators, parents, um, both with our partner schools, and then we also have projects that are looking at field more generally to understand what's people's perception of how high schools are doing in our in our region. Um, are they meeting the needs of what students and families and educators want? Um, what's missing from that from the experiences? Um, that students are currently receiving. Oftentimes, the thing that is uh, ranked most um, highly is something that's, that uh, parents and students want and feel like they are, need more of is support and planning for what happens after high school. So sort of the college and career planning realm of um, how do you do that in a way that isn't just like this one-off experience that might happen in your 12th grade year, but throughout the entire course of high school, how are students having um, embedded in their academic courses and other learning experiences exposure to the variety of, of opportunities that they might want to pursue, um, again, related to their identity development um, and the possibilities of what's, of what's next. And so we see that a lot in some of our polling more broadly, but that also helps get at the mindset about how are people feeling about high schools right now in our Build Public Will um, portfolio? Uh, we are um, we're trying to elevate the experiences and voices of students and parents and educators to build awareness about their current perceptions, as well as the demand and then the conditions to incentivize excellence and equity in schools. Um, so we kind of we try to go back to those voices, both in our individual school design work that we're supporting, as well as more broadly in the field um, to elevate perception of what, what the needs are and the opportunities are in high school. You know, we're sitting at a moment when advances in AI, um, generative AI and technology generally, are making it really clear that non-biological intelligence can do a lot of the things that we used to think were the things that only human beings could do. So in your public will work, are you engaging the broader community in conversations about the purpose of education, especially today, and the kinds of things that will need to look really different? Yeah, I think that's happening in some small ways with some of our partnerships. 
the bigger idea around the purpose of education. And, and even if AI wasn't on the scene in the way that it is, I think we had st- we would still have some work to do as a field around thinking about work for- workforce development, the difference between workforce development and the purpose of education. And again, getting back to your earlier points around how do we take a more human-centered approach And if workforce development isn't the only driver of what we want to accomplish through an educational experiences for young people, then how do we define what that looks like? And what does that mean for how our schools are organized and deliver um, supports and education to students? And so there's, I think there's a bigger, more global question. And then with layering on AI, um, I think it probably it gets a lot more complicated and one that we haven't fully tackled yet. Hmm. Is that something you you would sort of say as a field is something we should be more intentionally spearheading, like that level of conversation with communities? I think there's an opportunity to engage lots of different voices in what the purpose of education is. And we can't ignore the current world context um, that we're in. And how. Ha- part of it is having people make intentional choices um, that we're not just maintaining the status quo in education, um, but what's the intentionality around our decisions without knowing fully what's going to happen as the world continues to evolve. But based on what we know now, what is, what is, what does the purpose of education mean? Um, And then make intentional decisions around Uh, what that means for the school design, it gets back to what we were talking about earlier around being clear about your purpose. Um, That oftentimes, especially for existing schools, they haven't had to actively question um, that or rethink it because the school has existed for decades potentially. And um, there's sort of this maintenance and some, some certainly shifts happen over time but sort of there hasn't been a fundamental in many places, a fundamental questioning of what is our purpose here and what's our vision for our school. Um, that is oftentimes we found for our partners, many of them, it's the first time they've had to do that work in, in their career. So if I could, if I could um, give an analogy, you know, so much about shifting how systems operate has to do with the infrastructure that supports them. So like in energy, renewable energy was really hard to kind of get online because a lot of the existing infrastructure was designed around coal and gas and transporting it. So we're having to build a new infrastructure if we want to move to sustainable energy sources. And similarly, our education infrastructure, whether it's how we credential learning or how who counts as an educator or how we do accountability or how we do post-secondary, you know, kind of admissions. All of those things really ground us in some version of the old system. Um, I want to start with accountability. And you mentioned small a accountability um, in terms of how schools were doing it. But what would we shift in our accountability systems if we wanted to incentivize and support shifts in how we thought about purpose and the things that we valued and measured? Yeah, I I mean, I think accountability systems, especially if you're thinking about the state level are complicated in that there's data, you know, they're restricted to some degree by their data that's available or could be potentially collected where local accountability, there's opportunities to collect data in in potentially different ways. but for at the stay in accountability level, again, sort of how are we leading with our values? For example, are we thinking about uh, does it matter with students graduate in a precise number of years or does it matter that they graduate from high school at all and continue to be enrolled and engaged in meaningful and high quality learning experiences until that graduation point? So thinking about like sort of is the number of years matter or does the fact that they graduate matter? Um, Similarly at the high school level also, do we want to think about what happens to students after they graduate from high school? Um, How, how much responsibility do we want to put on schools for what happens next for students? Many accountability systems are only focused on what happens during that 
the K-12 experience and not for what happens next with students. And I think there's an opportunity to bring in more of what's happening for students um, and tie that back to what their experiences were in high school. Um, and then I've also heard you, me- you know, mention several times, like the schools themselves are doing student surveys about, you know, how did they, f- did they feel connected? Did they feel like they had meaningful learning experiences? You know, d- um, so like adding some of those pieces in. The U.S. Secretary um, of Education announced he wants more states to actively look into different accountability systems um, that are broader. Are there thoughts you have about how funders, not bar exclusively, but just how funders as a, as a field, might be able to support those kinds of efforts? Yeah, I think funders more generally have an interesting and important perch of what's happening in the field more broadly. And so have, similar to what we were talking about with Canopy earlier, have an opportunity to lift up what is currently existing so that we are not reinventing or developing things from scratch, but... um, again, can stand on the shoulders of others uh, to explore what might be possible. And so funders could certainly play a role in helping to elevate promising approaches or new ways of thinking um, and doing any type of work, but certainly inclusive of accountability systems as well. Barr's work has supported changes within the public education system, and I really appreciate that because I think a strong public education system is really necessary if we want to support our most vulnerable students and communities. But we've also heard a lot of the ways in which our public education infrastructure right now can't support the changes that human-centered programs are trying to make, so assessment, for example, or accountability. In other sectors, we use public-private partnerships to invest in building things that the public system can't do alone. Do we need a new infrastructure for public education? And if so, what role could funders play in that? Yeah, I think one of the roles that we play is providing the not only the, the financial dollars, but the sort of the cover for reimagining and thinking about things differently and helping uh, communities to to invest in the time and space to do that that exact thing that they wouldn't have the opportunity to do otherwise. Um, one of the things that we have invested in a lot beyond grant dollars going to our specific partners is a range of beyond the grant supports um, that in some ways could could be seen as like helping to sort of like jigsaw together some of the gaps that we're seeing in the public system. So things, for example, like investing in um, communication as a leadership skill for school and system leaders um, or um, bringing together a school leader a community of practice so they are able to learn with and from each other. Um, investing in uh, a rigorous and purposeful, what does it mean to really dig into what rigorous and purposeful learning experiences look like um, or get support around uh, curriculum, like the transformative learning experiences that these rich project-based learning units that we've been investing in. Um, All of those are these additional supports that we offer um, as sort of a, a private foundation uh, to our partners, I think with an acknowledgement that uh, it takes a sort of a multifaceted approach to do this work really well. And we have to be in real partnership together um, to move the needle that these are really complex systems to move um, to your point, And that it, it's, it takes that sort of level of partnership and understanding of where where the needs and opportunities are to invest in that sort of variety of ways. And it, it does make you wonder too, whether that includes partnership among philanthropies. Like I think we're hearing this phrase coming up a lot, like the, the problems are complex and they're big and they're beyond the purview of one funder to be able to fund and support. And so what does it mean for funders to come together, right? And kind of think about working together around bigger investments potentially um, that are longer term place. Um, so yeah, lots, lots of work to do. I mean, 
We've learned so much uh, through this work. I did a lot of grant making when I was at the State Department of Education as well. And I think the thing that I've learned over and over again through the years in that role at the state and then doing grant making at a foundation is um, how important it is to think big about what the possibilities are and really take this holistic approach that um, that we're not going to get the results that we're looking for with even the best well-designed and intentioned individual initiative or project that we really have to get at the fundamental change. And that that takes a lot of time and we have to be willing to stay in partnership with communities over the long haul uh, to be able to see the benefits of that kind of work that these are, these are not quick wins. Um, there may be some small wins along the way, and hopefully there are, um, that keep people motivated and excited to, to continue the work. But uh, the, the bigger ambition that we're after takes a lot of time. And, and so feel very fortunate to, to be able to do that type of partnership in the role that we have here. I appreciate you naming that because I feel like it comes up a lot in conversations with funders. One, this idea of like process and outcome, and those are two different things. And there's a process you engage in and there are successes along the way um, before you get to the kind of final piece, but also just the being realistic about the time frame for change, like intractable problems or seemingly intractable problems are that for a reason, right? And if they if they took 50 years to create or 100 years to create, it's going to take a minute to like to to get to someplace different. And so to be both urgent and patient, which mm-hmm. is a hard balance for us to strike sometimes. Absolutely. We often use the phrase with our school partners, go slow to go fast, that there's like this intentionality around their planning and their design work. And that we also, all of us are hungry for change and, mm-hmm. and feel the urgency and the pressure of doing right by students and that we can't actually get to those goals unless we slow down. And our, it's our experience that many communities have not had that opportunity to do that and just feel really fortunate and privileged to be able to invest in that sort of work. Great. Well, thank you so much, Jenny. Really appreciate our conversation. Appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Olga. Great to be here. Thanks for listening. The Future of Smart Podcast is a project of Grantmakers for Education and is made possible through the support of our generous member sponsors. If you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe and follow us on social media. You can find links to resources related to today's episode in the show notes. More episodes and events can be found at edfunders.org. To learn more about the future of smart, visit ulca.com, U-L-C-C-A.com. <laughs>